Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 133, Tom Albright and Brandon Garrett, The Law and Science of Eyewitness Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Yet again on the podcast today, we have a double feature with two guests joining us to discuss an article. The first guest is a returning guest to Excited Utterance, something of an Excited Utterance veteran, if you will, and that is Brandon Garrett. Brandon, as many of our listeners will know, is the L. Neal Williams Professor of Law and the director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke University School of Law. Alongside Brandon today is his co-author, Tom Albright. Tom is a professor and director at the Center for the Neurobiology of Vision and the Conrad T. Priebe's Chair in Vision Research at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Now, as you're about to hear, my discussion with Brandon and Tom today focuses on their 2021 article published in the Boston University Law Review, which is entitled The Law and Science of Eyewitness Evidence. We will discuss today how eyewitness evidence is utilized in both the investigatory and adjudicatory stages of the criminal justice process. We'll kind of review what the scientific literature has to say about eyewitness evidence, and ultimately we'll hear Brandon and Tom's recommendations for how we can reform the use of eyewitness evidence both during investigations and at trial. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to speak with both Brandon and Tom. Their insight is unparalleled when it comes to this particular topic, eyewitness evidence, and I hope you will enjoy what they have to say about their article today. Tom and Brandon, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I think we're supposed to say that we're excited to be here. I have my Excited Utterance t-shirt. Apparently, I'm one of like the five people who made that exact same joke. Exactly. Now you can buy your own merchandise, although I'll save that plug for the end, perhaps. Because we have an exciting topic today. Our focus is on eyewitness identification, which I do think is so important. I want to begin, therefore, before we jump into anything too complex, just with an overview of eyewitness evidence. What is the role that it plays in the legal system? How influential is it? How important is it? We should both talk about this because it's been really important to the legal system and it's been an area where there's been incredibly groundbreaking scientific research. The legal part is a little bit easier for me to answer first. There are a lot of cases where, contrary to popular belief, you can't do a DNA test, there aren't going to be any forensics, and the main person who could say something about what happened is a bystander or a victim, a witness, someone who's, who saw something. And although these days there are more cameras and there are more things that are caught on digital, even where there are cameras, sometimes it's pretty blurry. And sometimes more often than people assume, it often depends on something very traditional, like a person who saw something happen, talking about what happened, drawing on their memory. And sometimes you're interested in what happened. Can they describe those events? We are most focused on the core thing, which is can they associate that face with a person? Can we figure out who did the thing? Who is that stranger that the eyewitness saw? And for decades now, police have tried to be more professional about this, to actually try to test the memory of an eyewitness by showing them a series of mugshots. In-person lineups are not used so often anymore. 
We don't have great numbers because data is poor in our criminal system, but there have been estimates that these kinds of police identification procedures are done tens and tens of thousands of times a year. And we know a lot more now about when people's face memory is reliable and, and how to test their memory. We know a lot more in part because the science is really advanced and the advance of the science has really nothing to do with eyewitness identification. There's just been a push over the course of the last century to try and understand how the brain works. And much of that focus has been on two specific parts of the brain, the part that underlies visual perception and the part that underlies memory. And these are now parts of the brain that we understand more than anything else. And as a result of that increase in knowledge about how those parts of the brain work, we're in a position now to make judgments about the reliability of eyewitness reports. So this topic has gathered the attention of the scientific community in a pretty big way over the past 30 years or so. And rather than science that's, that's rather general in an effort to try and understand how vision and memory work, this is science that is specifically addressing the problem of eyewitness identification, in which factors that are normally being buried in a random way in the real world and real eyewitness situations are being controlled in the laboratory so we can see what the effect of those variables are on the performance of an eyewitness. It really has become a unique convergence of law and, and science, which has been very productive. Absolutely. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, what I want to focus on first, perhaps, is this notion that Brandon touched on, on the pervasiveness of eyewitness identifications, perhaps before then we reconcile that with what Tom just mentioned in terms of the scientific problems that accompany eyewitness identifications. But going to that former topic first, I want to focus on the investigatory side of things before we get to courtroom adjudication. So in the investigatory policing context, how are eyewitness identifications typically utilized? I can start with a little bit of this. Eyewitnesses get asked to identify people sometimes several times in an investigation or in a case. But obviously, we've all seen dramatizations on TV in the courtroom where the eyewitness is in the witness stand and is pointing to someone who's usually pretty easy to pick out, right? It's usually the defendant who's sitting next to counsel at counsel's table or wearing a suit. And you know where the defendant is. It's not like a test of the person's memory, but it's super dramatic and often emotional for someone to have to confront someone and blame them in the courtroom. But that's not a test. So when police either see something or get called to a scene and they find someone who tells them, yeah, I can say something about what happened. I saw someone do something. One thing that they can do in the minutes and hours immediately after an incident is just do a quick show up. If they immediately arrest someone running away from the scene and bring them back, they can ask an eyewitness, is this the person who stole your purse or is this the person you saw commit an assault? They don't have to do a full lineup. There really may not be practically time to set one up. And often they're just trying to rule out possible suspects. The eyewitness can immediately say, no, that's not the person I saw running away. And so there is leeway to do a, what's called a show up, a one-on-one -on -one ID within the immediate hours after an incident. It could be just a single photograph or it can be just bringing over a person. There are ways of doing that really suggestively, like have the person in handcuffs and put the proceeds of the crime in front of them and say, is this the one who did it? There are better ways of doing those show-ups. They are suggestive because there's only one person. Is this the guy? After that initial time period, the better practice is to actually make it a test where if an eyewitness gets it wrong, it's not going to result in an innocent person getting arrested. And so typically there's a photo array, usually with six photos, and there's some fillers or innocent images there that everyone knows is not the suspect. There'll be one suspect and five innocent images. 
And that spreads the errors out so that if the person picks a filler, everyone knows that that's not the suspect. Although there is actually a DNA exoneration of an innocent person who was included as a filler in a lineup. And then the police were shocked that this filler got picked. Not so shocked, though, that they didn't then interrogate the person, get them to falsely confess, and then convicted them. That's not supposed to happen. In the old days, it was more common for there to be in-person physical lineups, including because of the cost of just having archives of photographs and finding photographs that looked alike. A lot of those in-person lineups were still pretty hard to set up. Like in New York City, often it would be uh, police officers and or homeless people who would be the fillers. And you could kind of tell who looked like a cop and who was willing to be a filler because they were indigent for you know $5 or $10. And so the move has been to just use headshots, basically, and, and do these with photographs. And there are some other ways that police can ask an eyewitness about a person. Sometimes they'll just give them books of mugshots and say, like, we don't even have a suspect picture to show you. Just trawl through all these photographs or go through the high school yearbook. Like, was it someone at the high school? Here's the entire high school yearbook. There are a lot of reasons why that's not desirable, but police sometimes do that. One final tool they sometimes use is to work with a sketch artist or a program to try to generate a picture based on a description. And there are some concerns about that too. But in general, the most common practice is to show six pictures in what's called a six pack, just like three on the top, three on the bottom, one of whom is a suspect and ask the eyewitness open-ended, can you identify any of these? Or You don't have to make an identification, but are any of these people the person that you saw? Let's change the context ever so slightly from investigation to adjudication and look at the courtroom. How are eyewitness identifications also used as evidence in a trial setting? Well, typically a witness will be asked some background questions about who you are, what were you doing that day, what did you see? They may then be asked about the earlier lineups that happened with the police. At some point, did a detective show you some photographs? And were you able to pick out the person that you saw at the scene? And is this the photo that you picked out? And then finally, do you see that person in the courtroom today? Can you point out that person in the courtroom? And so the jurors, or if it's a bench trial, the judge, they will see this person talking about what they saw at a crime scene. They'll hear this person talk about how they came to later identify the person with, through a police procedure. And then they will also see a, enacted a courtroom identification. And typically all those things will happen. It can be the case that a eyewitness identifies someone for the very first time in court. That would be unusual, and it would also be really contrary to best practices and problematic. But normally, they will be hearing about a prior ID. They'll be hearing about the initial sighting of this stranger, and then they'll have a courtroom ID. So it'll be three different moments in time, the crime scene, the police identification procedure, and then the present day in the courtroom. All three of those things will be discussed in a criminal trial. And I actually want to return to something that Tom said at the top of the podcast, which is what the scientific literature has to say about eyewitness vision and memory. So, Tom, what does modern research have to say about all this eyewitness evidence, these eyewitness identifications in our legal system? How reliable are they? Well, there are two aspects of this, one having to do with the visual system and visual processing of sensory information, and the other has to do with memory. So when a witness is observing something, and this is true in normal life as well, it's not strictly related to witnessing criminal events, but you see something in your environment, that information is processed by your visual system in the sense that you construct a percept of what gave rise to the sensory information. In this case, it's just light cast onto the back of the eye, the retina. 
and then that information is carried up to the rest of the brain. But you fill in the details. You construct a version of what's out there, what gave rise to that sensory stimulus. And that version of what's out there under most conditions is veridical. It's something you can bank on, something you can use in order to interact with the world. But under some conditions, there are contextual factors that cause you to perceive things incorrectly. The case that most people are familiar with is performance magic. A good magician will introduce context that causes you to perceive something different from the way it physically is in the real world. And you're absolutely sure of what you've seen, but you're wrong. And that's an extreme case. But there are factors that cause people to perceive the natural world incorrectly. And there's a good story about evolution behind this. That is the case that we evolved in an environment that is noisy, it's incomplete, it's ambiguous in many cases. And so the brain of all animals needs to fill in the blanks in order to know what to do with the environment in front of us. And normally, as I said earlier, we fill in the blanks correctly, but sometimes we make mistakes. So that's the visual processing part of it. In the case of an eyewitness, the information is perceived needs to be stored in memory. There are several steps involved in that memory process. The first is commonly referred to as encoding. So we encode the thing that we perceive that gets put into the memory store in the brain. It happens because there are changes in the strengths of connections between cells in the brain. And then the information is stored there for some time. And then two things happen. One, it sort of naturally deteriorates the memory store. We forget things. And the second is that other sources of information can interfere. They can modify the stored information in a way that makes it no longer consistent with what was perceived. And both of these things happen with eyewitnesses. Over time, they forget. And forgetting has been studied extensively for decades. And we know the time course of forgetting under normal conditions. Of course, an eyewitness event has a number of abnormal features to it, which I can come back to in a moment. But under normal events, forgetting progresses. So eventually we lose some of the information that was originally perceived. And other information comes in from other sources. The witness may talk to another witness, may talk to the press or the counsel. And as a result of that, they unwittingly modify the information that they've stored in memory, such that when it's time to recall that information, it's not in the same form it was in when it was stored. So those are two problems associated with those two facets of the system. I tend to think of this in terms of what are the factors that we need in order to make decisions based on sensory information. And there are two important things there. One is uncertainty and the other is bias. As I said a moment ago, the sensory information is noisy for a variety of reasons, which creates uncertainty. And whenever there's uncertainty, we tend to fill in the blanks with other pieces of information because it's important that we be able to execute a response. The worst thing that can happen if you're an animal wandering around the natural world is to encounter something that you can't interpret because it might eat you, for example. And so we tend to use our prior experiences to develop probable guesses, you could say, as to what's out there. And as I said, most of the time we're correct. Now, in addition to uncertainty and bias, the third problem is confidence. And this is a major issue with eyewitness identification because a witness may express lack of confidence at the time of the initial lineup. If the police say, how sure are you? They might say, well, I'm 60% sure that's the guy. But over time, 
in part because they interact with other people who reinforce them and because witnesses are generally, Brandon would know more about this, but I, I think most witnesses are eager to be helpful. And as a result of that, they lower their threshold for saying things are true relative to what their threshold might be otherwise. And that's a problem. And there's this general tendency, it's a co well understood cognitive phenomenon. We like to go through the world with a consistent view of what's going on. And we create stories in our head about what's happening. What are the causes of sensory stimulation? What happened over time? Why do we remember this thing and not that thing? And one consequence of that effort to create a seamless version of our world is that we become increasingly confident of things that we might initially not have been very confident of. And this is the phenomenon of confidence inflation, which is pretty common in eyewitness identification. So if somebody says 60% at the initial lineup, by the time they get to court, almost by definition, they're going to be 100% sure. And of course, nothing has changed about the accuracy of their judgment. The only thing that's changed is their confidence in it. And it's a really pernicious problem for the trier of fact. So the jury can be very easily swayed by a witness who comes in and says, well, I'm absolutely certain that's the guy. And so we tend to rely on the judgment of eyewitnesses in a way that's not entirely rational. Perfect. Well, thanks, Tom. I think that's a really wonderful recap of the scientific literature. And I'm curious now how courts themselves have responded to this science on eyewitness identifications. And I guess the first place to start on this conversation is at the very top with the United States Supreme Court. So how, how has SCOTUS responded to the potential problems associated with eyewitness identifications? The article that we wrote includes really rich descriptions of the scientific research, but it also includes multiple 50-state surveys of how courts have responded to eyewitness evidence and how states have also changed their approaches through statutes and through jury instructions. It's like a mini treatise, this article. We have large appendices, and the law review editors at the journal did incredible work checking all of those appendices, and so did our law students in helping to go through all these different states. And so in general, like we're focused on the states because that's where a lot of the interesting legal engagement with the science has been. The Supreme Court, not so much. I can give you a quick answer. Nothing has really changed since 1976 when the Supreme Court in Manson versus Brathwaite cemented its due process test, where they basically named some factors distilled from prior cases. That's what judges do. They come up with a multi-factor test, not really based on research, but just based on stuff that judges had found valuable. And they said, look, if police engage in undue suggestion with an eyewitness, we understand that that could really sway an eyewitness, maybe even change their memory. But we're not going to exclude the eyewitness at trial under the due process clause, at least, if there's other indicia of the reliability of that eyewitness, including how much time had passed, which is relevant, and some other factors, how confident was the eyewitness initially, and some other things. And so there's no particular way that you balance these factors. They just sort of name some things. And basically, if a judge concludes, this seems like a reliable eyewitness, then under the due process clause, you don't constitutionally exclude the eyewitness. And that said, state evidence rules normally handle questions of reliability. There was just uh, the concern under the due process clause that a trial could be grossly unfair if a really unreliable witness is used. That framework hasn't changed. There was a more recent case, Perry versus New Hampshire, 
dealing with what if the police didn't mean to even do a lineup and then the Supreme Court basically said no state action, there isn't a due process issue there. Largely, you know, this has not been a constitutional issue, nor do the rules of evidence have special rules uh, dealing with eyewitnesses. In general, the rules of evidence, as listeners of this podcast know well, are meant to apply across criminal cases or across civil and criminal cases. And so it really has been the state courts that have been confronting head-on misidentifications, you know, wrongful convictions, DNA exonerations in cases where eyewitnesses got it wrong. And so they don't have the luxury of really ignoring the problems that occur when eyewitnesses make mistakes and serious criminal cases get reversed. And so it's really been the state courts that have taken the lead in rethinking the relevance of this research to the tests that judges and jurors use to evaluate eyewitness evidence. Well, then I think the pressing follow-up question for me is that state court survey that you did state court practices, perhaps a little bit more receptive to the problems with eyewitness identifications. What were your findings with respect to state courts? State courts have done really remarkable things. And so have state lawmakers, and then the court and bar committees that write jury instructions. A number of state Supreme Courts have been leaders in developing new frameworks and approaches for considering scientific research and eyewitness evidence. Sometimes the jury instructions, in some states quite detailed ones, that digest some of the main findings of the scientific research. Sometimes those jury instructions resulted from a call by the state Supreme Court to do better in terms of educating jurors, as well as lawyers. And uh, some of the changes that state Supreme Courts and lower state courts have made are more modest. They say, well, you should consider whether it's a cross-racial identification, or you should really be looking at the confidence of an eyewitness at the time of the lineup, not in court. Only a few state courts have addressed the problem of courtroom identifications that we talked about, which are really suggestive. It's not really a test of the eyewitness's memory in court. Few states have said that that really shouldn't be happening for the first time in court. The vast majority of states have opened the door saying that we need to have experts, that it's not a problem, and in fact can be a very good thing for there to be a a scientist like Tom to explain this research to the jury, that it's not intuitive to jurors. People may assume that it's like a photograph in your mind. You pull up the photograph in your brain and say, oh, that's the one I saw. You you really need a scientist to explain these principles because it's not not intuitive. So the law around admissibility of experts has dramatically changed. There are many old cases. It was common for most state courts to say, this is about the credibility of a witness. That's the province of the jury. Courts realize that science has a lot to say about this and that we're not good at sizing up visual memory of eyewitnesses. So... There's a lot in the article, and I don't want to take away from it, but overall, there have been more than a dozen state Supreme Courts that have done interesting things. Some of them have done really, really robust, detailed things to rethink the framework for eyewitness evidence. Others have done more modest things that nevertheless are important. The vast majority of courts have reconsidered experts. Many state courts, and about half the states, have redone jury instructions, so you don't just tell the jury you know, evaluate the credibility of the witness like you would any witness. Uh, They they say something often more informed by science, at least. And then on top of that, we've had lawmakers pass statutes and some of these other things, which we can talk about more if we have time. Yeah, and I really want to just emphasize a point that you mentioned, that this is such an expansive article that we're only even discussing the tip of the iceberg in the time that we have available today. So I do encourage our listeners to go and read it because it is just a comprehensive look at eyewitness identifications throughout the country, the, the treatment of eyewitness identifications. But I'm curious about those statutory or administrative responses in states as well. Is 
reform toward eyewitness identifications channeled primarily through state courts, or is it also coming through a more legislative and administrative response? One reaction I have is that by the time something gets to a criminal trial, it's kind of too late, right? If police have done something suggestive, and we tell some stories from real cases in our article just to highlight the practical significance of this, if an eyewitness's memory has already been changed, they may not have any awareness of the fact that the face that they're recalling is not the person that they saw at the crime scene. You know, eyewitness memory is malleable and it can be altered, it can be contaminated by well-meaning police, you know, lineup procedures. So ideally, you want to get things right at the time of the lineup, at the time of that first interaction with the eyewitness. Even just when you're asking them for a description of what happened, you don't want to be suggestive. And, and so in some ways, the front end stuff, having statutes and model policies regarding how you do a lineup in the first instance, that's the most important thing. If then those best practices are not followed, there should be some consequence in court. And so the judge is there to step in if a law enforcement agency did something unprofessional. But in the first instance, you need law enforcement to have those tools. And in the past, many agencies didn't have that. They just sort of said, yeah, throw a mug book together, show the eyewitness some photos. It's more common to have clear instructions and training to make sure that these lineups aren't done in a biased way, that they're done blind and the like. We've just been actually looking at the lineup policies across Pennsylvania, over a thousand different agencies. And unfortunately, there are a lot of small police agencies in this country that don't have the resources to be up on the best practices and often lag. The larger urban agencies that are accredited, that are connected more to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, they often sort of respond to research more quickly because they have more resources to do that. But over time, we're seeing far broader dissemination of these best practices to even the smallest agencies. It's not expensive to do a lineup right. It's quite simple. You can do things like put the images in folders and shuffle them to blind a lineup. Like these are really simple, cheap tools. And it's really a wonderful thing when science actually provides something that's simple and cheap to do, right? This is not like, okay, you need to get new biometric software. This is like, you can put the pictures in folders and shuffle them and then give them to the eyewitness. It's easy and expensive. And, and law enforcement faces first instance. And often if an eyewitness picks the wrong person, it'll be very clear that that person didn't do it. And that will really harm the investigation. And so we want courts to be a backup when there's misconduct or just error. But I think what's really been important about this legislation and also the model policies from the police professional associations is that they provide the guidance and the structure to get eyewitness memory right from the very beginning. As a final question, I want to shift from the descriptive to the normative. You mentioned best practices in that response just now. I'm curious, what are the best practices? Given what we know today about eyewitness identifications, how should we be encouraging reform, whether it's on the investigatory side of things, the adjudication side of things? What's the best path moving forward? We also talk about not just the importance of getting lineups up right early on, but some new research that suggests some new possibilities, new tools. And I'll let Tom talk about some of them. The one I'll just mention is something I would want law enforcement to think about which is, A, when we record lineups, time how long it takes for the eyewitness to make an identification. That decision time can tell us something really useful about how reliable the eyewitness is. It's not something courts have really focused on very much, but researchers have done a growing amount of work on that. Something easy to measure, just like a stopwatch. The second is we can test the face memory ability of eyewitness. Not everyone is good at faces. I was actually surprised to take the Cambridge face memory test and, and learn that I'm actually like 
pretty good with faces, I guess, compared to the average and better than I thought I was. But we really should invest in some better for different races, face memory tests, because we wouldn't refuse to test the eyesight of an eyewitness if we were worried that the person needed their vision corrected and might not have been able to see the face from 50 feet away. The idea that we don't want to know whether a person is good with faces, some people are really good face recognizers. We should really rely on them as eyewitnesses. And police should know that. They should know that this is an eyewitness that would be valuable to work with versus this is someone like many of us who's terrible with faces and not the kind of person that we should really rely on in a criminal case. That kind of screening would be really simple and inexpensive to do, and there should be investment in it. But we talk about some other ideas and other frontier areas in the research and the article as well. And I want to hand it over to you, Tom, to talk about some others. Sure. So Brandon's correct. There's a number of avenues in which we can pursue the science to improve practices. There are two basic questions that the science can address. One is, are there methods an eyewitness identification is basically a behavioral task in which you're trying to extract a piece of memory from the observer. And are there better tasks that are suited for that purpose than the task that is currently used? About 40 years ago, there was the standard lineup until that time was, as Brandon said, it was six people typically, and they're all viewed at the same time. And the witness's task is to identify somebody they may have seen from the crime scene. And the man named Gary Wells came along about 40 years ago and suggested that there might be improved performance if we show the lineup faces one at a time instead of all at the same time. And that became the sequential lineup. And it's a fundamental change in the nature of the behavioral task that yields slightly different performance. And there's been some extended debate. I won't go into the details of that extended debate about which of these two procedures, the simultaneous versus the sequential, is better for extracting the memory from the witness. But there may be other behavioral tasks that are more suited for that. In my lab, we developed something called a paired comparison task. It's another task that's been used extensively in experimental psychology over the past century, and it has promise as well. So that's one strategy is to try and improve the, the nature of the memory extraction process. The other strategy is to use factors that are associated with the identification to predict the accuracy of the identification. Because really, this is what the trier effect wants to know is how somebody says they saw this person. Well, how accurate is that testimony? And this is analogous to the problem of diagnosis in medicine. There are a number of symptoms that can be measured from a patient. And in fact, there are now algorithms that physicians use to predict the disease and the prognosis given those symptoms. In eyewitness identification, there's a set of variables that are associated typically with the initial witnessing event. And these are termed estimator variables. Gary Wells distinguished between estimator variables more generally are those that are not under the control of the criminal justice system. These are things that happen to be correlated with the witnessed event or events slightly afterwards that aren't easily controlled. And then there are system variables, and these are things such as the type of lineup that can be controlled by the criminal justice system. So estimator variables in particular for example, the state of the observer, the amount of stress that they're under at that particular point in time, and then the state of the environment in which they're observing things, so, you know, whether it's dark, how far away they are from the witnessed events, what's the duration and time. And those factors, those estimator variables, are, are things that could be used to predict the reliability of the witness's testimony. 
in the same way that certain kinds of symptoms in a medical patient can be predictive of the disease and the prognosis. And I think that that's where we're going to find some of the best progress. There's an extremely controversial factor that has been discussed recently, which is the confidence in the eyewitness. And Brandon and I have both spoken about this, that the confidence is an unreliable predictor of accuracy generally. But there may be circumstances in which confidence exhibited by a witness may give the trier of fact some indication of the accuracy of that testimony. This remains to be sorted out completely, but it is one possibility. And as I said, these other factors, which all play into this issue of uncertainty, which I spoke about earlier, the amount of light and the viewing distance and so forth, all of those are potentially predictive of accuracy. Well, Tom and Brandon, this has been a fascinating conversation. Once more, I'll encourage our listeners to go out and read their article. It really is comprehensive, a wonderful look into the world of the scientific literature reconciled with eyewitness identifications. But for now, thank you to you both for coming on Excited Utterance. It was a pleasure. It was exciting. Thank you. At the top of the podcast, during my introductory comments, I mentioned that Brandon's and Tom's article is the comprehensive authority on eyewitness evidence. And I want to emphasize that aspect right now as we conclude this particular episode. You heard today that we could barely contain all the information that they provide in their article in this podcast format. We were joking offline that this could this episode could have perhaps been an audiobook given just how extensive their article is. So as a brief conclusion to this particular episode, I would really encourage you all, if this topic is of interest, if you're interested in eyewitness evidence, if you're interested in how the law treats eyewitness evidence, go download this piece and read it the entire way through. Because Tom and Brandon do a fantastic job of surveying the 50 states, surveying the different both federal system and state systems, Uh, to show how the law treats eyewitness identifications. In addition to the topics that we focused on during our discussion, their article includes a list of all the state statutes that deal with eyewitness identification. Their article includes a discussion of many state court rulings about the admissibility of eyewitness evidence. Relatedly, their article includes a discussion of state court rulings dealing with the admissibility of eyewitness experts or expert witnesses who will talk about the fallibility of eyewitness evidence. Their article includes a pattern jury instruction for dealing with eyewitness evidence. And their article also includes state and federal model eyewitness identification policies. I was not exaggerating when I said that this is indeed the comprehensive authority. So you see then that the discussion I was able to have with Tom and Brandon today, it was just the tip of the iceberg, but hopefully it was enough to whet your appetite to encourage you to go out and research this topic more. If you're interested in eyewitness identification, this is the article for you. And I think that Tom and Brandon have done a wonderful service both to the Evidence Academy and to the criminal justice system as a whole by providing this comprehensive resource on eyewitness identifications, on eyewitness evidence. I had a really fantastic time conversing with both Brandon and Tom. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. And most importantly, I hope you'll take my advice and go download their paper. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. 
The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Music for Excited Utterance is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you'll join us next time when we tackle another piece in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>